Well, again, welcome. I appreciate you being here. This, this series that I've developed called That You May Believe is uh, completely based on the Gospel of John. And we're going to take quite a few weeks and months to go through this Gospel. And I've encouraged you as a church uh, to read the Bible every day. And I, I, we provided some reading outlines last week. I uh, gave you some ideas and plans and challenges. And I just want to ask, how's your Bible reading going? Going all right? Good. You're a rare breed. If you're reading the Bible every day, you're a very rare breed. Statistics tell us that only 11% of all Americans read the Bible daily. So if that's who you are, you're, you're top of the class. And most of the time, if I'm honest with you, when you, when you read the Bible, most of the time, there's nothing that's absolutely earth-shattering when you read it. Sometimes you just read it. But there's this thing called compound interest. That's a powerful thing, and it doesn't just apply to finances. It applies to the Word of God as well. I was reading this week one scientific study, and it says this, that the more often you contemplate a thing, the more often you think about a thing, the more it affects our thought patterns, the more it determines how we feel and how we behave. Let that sink in. It's about compound interest. The more you think about something, the more you think about something, the more it starts to affect what you think, how you behave, your affections, your emotions. Though it might not be earth shattering, every time you pick it up, there's a thing called compound interest. And the more you take it and put it, even when it's not earth-shattering, the more you do it, the compound interest starts to take effect. And One of the things I was thinking about this week is the reason why so many in our culture are so wigged out, concerned, full of anxiety and bitter and angry at everything is because What they constantly think about and concentrate on is this. Right? It's no wonder people in our culture and society are so crazy. I read a book this last year called Atomic Habits. The author James Clear says this. Let this sink in. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you will become. All throughout our day, we're casting votes on who we will become. And every action we take is a vote for the type of person you will be. So every day, I'm casting votes on who I'll become. Every day. It might not be your shattering right up front, but this thing called compound interest has profound effect. And I'm casting votes. Same thing with this. Vote wisely. So for those of you who are reading the Bible every day, man, I'm proud of you. Keep it up. You're in the top percentile of people in this world. In this series, we're going to go through through the book of John. John told us in his gospel why he wrote the book. 
the end of it, John 20, verse 31, he says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, full life, abundant life, the life you're really looking for in His name. He wrote this so that those who don't yet believe will come to believe, and that those of us who already believe will believe at a deeper level, will be impressed and amazed at Jesus once again. The interesting thing to me as I, as I look at the Gospel of John, John was known as the disciple Jesus loved. John was with Jesus in Jesus' most personal times. Now, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had an inner circle of three. Three of them were really close, Peter, James, and John. He wrote the, John wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote three other little letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wasn't real original, not real creative, but John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in all of those the, the message that keeps coming across is about love. God's love for people, God's love for his creation, and our love for each other. And though John was, came to be known as the disciple Jesus loved, and as, as, as the writer of the, these letters of love, John didn't start out that way. Being loving was not part of his natural bent. See, James and his brother John, they had a nickname when Jesus met them. Do you even know what their nickname was? Sons of Thunder. That's awesome. Sons of Thunder. That's, that's, like, that's a nickname worth having. That's like Thor. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I, think, I think of the th Sons of Thunder. They're like, a, they're like a, a, a pro wrestling tag team. You know what I'm saying? I picture them in their little, you know, and all jacked up, ah, coming off the top rope like they're sons of thunder. I, I remember, I remember uh, growing up, my mama, she would always tell us kids of people in the Bible that we reminded her of. Uh, and she told me that I reminded her of a few different ones, but John was one of them. And I thought, yeah, sons of thunder. I took pride in that. And, and, and then I realized this whole deal about the disciples Jesus loved and how much we loved. And I thought, well, what young man wants to be known as like a loving child? You don't want that. You want a son to thunder. See, it was John in the early days who wanted to call down fire and absolutely destroy this group of people called the Samaritans because they didn't give John and the boys the welcome he thought they deserved. And he thought, fine, you're going to be mean and pissy to me? Fine, I'm going to call down, Jesus, let's call down fire. He was a son of thunder. That, that doesn't sound real loving, does it? See, see, what had happened is the Samaritans were mean to him, and he felt triggered. I mean, this, this, is, how, this is how people who are triggered this is how they, how they respond, right? Like, like what you said and what you posted and like what your words, like they just trigger me. I just feel triggered. You know, if I, and, and honestly, you trigger a person in this culture, man, if they could hold down fire on you, they would, right? 
Like the worst thing you can do is trigger somebody. And we live in a culture where if you're mean, I'm triggered. And everybody is either offended, a victim, or triggered about something. And see, John, he, he would rather fight than give mercy. John would rather, he'd rather yell at you than console you. John would rather give law than grace, but, but then something happened to John. He spent years walking hand in hand with Jesus. And it changed him. From a man of thunder to a disciple of love. And, 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 and once that happened, as John got over, he was never triggered again. Because Jesus had changed him. See, people who Jesus changes don't get triggered. And th this is what happens when we walk closely and consistently with Jesus. This is what happens when we avail ourselves regularly to the person of Jesus. That relationship, as you walk hand in hand, it changes who we are. It changes our deficiencies into beauties. And so, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's the prologue to the entire gospel of John. And it gives us the essential glory of Christ. It, it sets for us John's understanding of who Jesus is. And my friend Maddie is going to come and read for us the first 18 verses. Thank you, Maddie. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thank you, Maddie. Verses 1 through 18, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to spend some time in these 18 verses this week, I want to unpack them for you. This is the introduction to the principal character of this book, of the Bible. And John gives us his understanding of Jesus. And everything in this gospel 
everything in this book is rooted in and grows out of this introduction. These first 18 verses. And what we know from this first 18 verses, I just want to teach the Bible this morning. What we know from these 18 verses is that this Jesus, this Jesus has been active and has been working since before the beginning. I'm going to give you a little bit of Bible instruction. There's this word called the incarnation. The incarnation means literally a person who embodies in flesh a deity, a spirit, or an abstract quality. The incarnation means that that in the flesh there becomes resident within the flesh a deity, that which is spirit, or some abstract quality. And so what we know from John is that Jesus, the man Jesus, was the incarnation of the Father, the Father who could not be seen, the Father who is spirit. The Bible says those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth because He is spirit. This God who is spirit became resident. Jesus was the incarnation of the Father, the one who embodied all that the Father is was resident in the incarnation, the embodiment that is Jesus. And though we know Jesus, we talk about Jesus in His incarnation when He took on flesh. What we know from John is that Jesus was active and present long before the incarnation. Long before Christmas night, Jesus already was. See, we learned from John in the first nine verses about what's called the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus. You ready for this? Are you ready? Someone say, go on, teach the Bible, Pastor. Okay, it's as good as you get. Okay, so here, here, here's, here's the, the, the pre-incarnate glory of, of Christ. This is who Jesus was before Christmas morning. John 1, 1 through 9. We read in his pre-incarnate state. That He was the Word of God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verses 2 through 3, we learn that Jesus was the creator of the universe. Verses 4 through 9, we learn that Jesus was always the light of mankind. See, before Christmas, Jesus was the Word, the thought, the plan of God. Before Christmas, Jesus was already the creator of all things. Before Christmas, Jesus was already the light that dispels the darkness. His pre-incarnate glory. He's always been. He didn't just show up. Jesus has always been. And all things come to existence and fruition in Him. But then because of Christmas, we see not just, we, he moves from His incarnate glory to his, his incarnate glory. When He embodies the fullness in the flesh of God the Father in verses 10 through 18, we see that His incarnate glory, verses 10 through 13, he, he, we see Him as the Savior of men. And verses 14 through 18, we see Him as the revealer of God. See, because of Christmas, what we call the incarnation, when the fullness of God took on bodily form, because of Christmas, what we call the incarnation, what we see now is I have a Savior who has opened heaven for me. And because of the incarnation, this Jesus, I see the physical embodiment of God, all that God is. See, God is not a mystery anymore. 
Because of the incarnation. Jesus has always been. All things that were created have been created through him, by him, and for him. He's always been the light of life. He's always been. But in the, in the incarnation, when God, when Jesus in his, in his eternal state took on bodily form, he revealed to us what the Father is like. See now, I know what the Father's like by reading who Jesus is in the Bible. I see God clearly now because of the incarnation of Jesus. So let me go back and teach verses 1 through 18. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have to understand the context of the culture to understand what John is saying. So let me just drop a little bit of world and uh, philosophical history on you. In the Greek world, there was a great philosopher. His name was Plato. Uh, and he made uh, this squishy little clay substance. No, I was kidding. It, it, the philosopher Plato. One of the great things he wrote was called Republic. And in Republic, he wrote about the uh, allegory of the cave. Now, this is really, really profound and deep philosophy stuff about humans' existence. And so let me take what is incredibly profound, deep, and complex and um, rancho it up a little bit for you. Okay? So, so simply stated, humanity lives in an underground cave. And humanity is staring at the wall of the cave. And behind humanity is a great fire. And there are, there's the reality, the, the true reality, in front of the fire behind the humanity. And the fire is casting shadows of that which is really real onto the wall of the cave. And all humanity sees are the shadows. We don't see the reality. There's a greater thought behind the shadows, but all we see is the shadow. And the allegory goes on and explains how to get out of the cave and the revelation and all this stuff. But, but the idea here is that what you and I see are the shadows of a greater reality, the greater thought. Then the Hebrew understanding came along and said that may be true that we don't see the reality necessarily, but the thought that is casting the shadow is God. And so the Hebrew understanding of this philosophy said that we can know the reality by knowing God, but in the Hebraic understanding, God was so holy, you couldn't speak God's name. And that's why the Hebrews would speak of God as in four consonants, Y-H-W-H, that we would pronounce Yahweh. They weren't allowed to say his name. And so now John comes along and he says, I understand what you Greeks are thinking, that what we see is a shadow of a greater reality. We don't know what the reality is. And I understand what historically us Hebrews have thought, that it's God, but we can't even say his name. I come to tell you that what we see is a greater reality. It's cast a shadow. We can know him and his name is Jesus. The word of God has become flesh. So John says, don't be fooled by the shadow. There's a greater reality behind what you see. And that greater reality can be known. And it is God, but God has a name. 
In the incarnation, it is Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus, the Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's why John starts the way he does. In the beginning was the Word. He's saying, look, the unspoken reality is the Word of God, and the Word of God literally is Jesus. Verses 1 through 5. It amazes me how much of the New Testament draws on Old Testament, which makes sense because the Old Testament is what they knew. And when the writers were writing the books of the New Testament, they didn't know they were writing the books of the New Testament. And so what they're doing is drawing on all the things that they had learned in Sunday school. And, and, and if you want to understand the New Testament, which the book of John is part of, we've got to understand the Old Testament. And, and John so reminiscent of Genesis. Look at what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what he's saying. He's going back to Genesis 1, and he's drawing this analogy between Jesus and, 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 and who Jesus is and what God has done in the revelation of himself through Jesus and, 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 and back to all the way to the beginning of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts this way. In the beginning, God spoke. John 1 says this. In the beginning, Jesus is the word that God spoke. Do you understand? He goes back to Genesis 1. He says, in the beginning, darkness covered the whole earth. And in John 1, he says, but the beginning was the Word, and the Word, instead of darkness, the Word was light. And that light, this Jesus is the light, and the darkness to which Jesus has stepped into has not overcome that light. And when John uses the word overcome, it means literally the darkness of the world cannot comprehend the light that is God as revealed in Jesus. The darkness of the culture cannot possess it, cannot overcome it. The light is what has dispelled every darkness. See, there's promise and comfort in John's words. Because what he's saying is this, that there's no darkness that you face that Jesus can't make flee. The darkness cannot overcome it. The darkness cannot comprehend it. The darkness cannot possess it. That means you, your marriage is never so dark that the Word of God cannot light up. Your finances are never so dark that the Word of God cannot light up. Your, your sin is never so dark that the Word of God, Jesus, cannot chase away. Nothing you face, nothing I face is so dark that the light of Christ cannot destroy it. Here, here's how I like to say it. Whatever you're afraid of is afraid of Jesus. That darkness cannot comprehend, cannot overcome, cannot possess the light that is Christ. No matter how dark your world, no matter how dark your present might be right now, that darkness cannot overcome, that darkness cannot possess, that darkness cannot conquer who Jesus is, who is the light of light. See, Jesus was not only with God in the beginning, Jesus is God. The Word has become flesh. Jesus was not only 
at the beginning, through Jesus, all things have been made. Jesus is the beginning and the end. The light of life to all who would believe in Him. That's what verses 10 and 13 tell us. John 1, verses 10 through 13. He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world didn't recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, and His own didn't receive Him. Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This, John's saying, He was here. God had come. He came to His own. And His own didn't receive Him. But He was already here. When I was reading this, I was thinking, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. I remember when my sons were little, and you who are parents, hopefully you had this experience. I remember when I would come home from work or from traveling or whatever, I'd open the door, and they knew daddy was home. They'd come running down the hallway, running, Ah, I could go back. But that's what it is to be received. I came to my own, and they received me. Do you understand? And now John says he he, he, he was here, and you, you didn't receive. I cannot imagine what it would have been like for me to come home and my boy's not received. John says he was here and that people missed him, his own creation. So I got asked, have you missed him? When John says to those who receive him, he's using a very specific word. That word receive means to take by the hand, to be a companion. Those who've received him, to, to those who have taken him by his hand. Again, my mind goes back as a daddy. My mind goes back to my kids. And I remember when they were little, whenever we would go anywhere, they would reach their hand up. I would reach my hand down. We always, always walked hand in hand. Daddy and his kids. To receive. A couple weeks ago, we were in South Dakota. Get to spend Christmas with our whole family and with our two grandsons. Now when I reach out and grab Joe or Caleb or Wyatt's hands, it's a little awkward. Not that I don't do it on occasion. But now we were with gotta be with my grandson Miles. Uh, and Shell and I went shopping with him. 
and as you walked across the parking lot. <sighs> Got to relive that again. Receive his hand. Miles are pretty hefty, so we couldn't swing him like we did our, our other boy. He's a little bit, got a little bit more girth to him. But I, I got to ask, have you received him? I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm not talking about believing in God. I'm talking about reaching out and taking his hand. Some of you hearing my voice haven't done that yet. You're trying to be good. You're trying to be religious, trying to keep your stuff together. That's a far cry from taking the hand. Some of you took his hand a long time ago, and at this point now you're like, yeah, I got a lot of other stuff I want to hang on to. And you're trying to let go. Some of you, I know, you're feeling like, you know, I'm a little too old to hold someone's hand anymore. Be taking his hand. See, to all who have received him, who have taken his hand, John tells us he gives us the right to become the children of God. The right. Literally, when he says you have the right to become children of God, he's talking about the privilege of being his child, the legal rights, the legal claim. And once I'm a legal part of God's family as a legal child. I'm an heir of God and co-heirs with, why would anybody pass this up? Why would anybody choose not to take his hand? God made flesh. God made his dwelling among us through Jesus, the incarnation. Because of Jesus, now we can know who God is. God the Father is not a mystery. John tells us no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. We translate like this. No one has ever seen God. We get that. But the one and only, who is God, Literally, John says, who is in the heart of the Father has made him home. Jesus is God's heart in flesh. And if you're a parent, the old adage goes like this. Your kid, your child is your heart walking around outside your body. That's who Jesus is. The heart of the Father walking around. And this Jesus made His dwelling amongst us. He came. Don't miss Him. Why would you want to hold on to His hands? Because He's full of grace and truth. Why would you want to hold His hand? Because He's full of grace. Verse 16. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Well, why would you not hold on to his hand? Because in the grasping of his hand, you've received grace on top of grace that he's already given you. 
Literally, it means this, to all of those who have received him, who have become legally declared part of his, his legally, his child. We get favor after favor that's already been given. We get blessing after blessing that's already been given. We get gifts after gifts that already been given. The, 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 the thing that amazes me is that those people who complain and complain and complain about needing the favor, blessing, the gifts of God are usually those who at one time had grabbed onto his hand and now try to shake it off. Because when we hold on to that and live in the rights of his child, we continue to receive favor on top of favor he's already given. Grace on top of grace is already given. Blessing, gifts on top of it. He just keeps pouring it on. And so we start living off the generous abundance of gifts after gift after gift after gift. We start living in the presence of grace, added on top of grace, added on top of grace, added on top of grace. We start living because of the incarnation, this word became flesh, in the presence of his blessing, added on top of blessing, added on top of blessing, added on top, because Jesus. We have grace in place of grace, in place of grace. So because this word became flesh, there's no more performance-dependent salvation. Salvation is not because we've been good enough anymore. Because of grace upon grace, there's no more. If I'm good enough, God will. There's no more. Because of grace added to grace, there's no more begging for forgiveness. Because of grace added to grace, there's no more acts of penance that I have to make do to make up for what I've done. It's been done already. This person of Jesus is the reflection of God the Father. And to know the Father's heart, all you got to do is look at the person of Jesus revealed in the Bible. And you start to see and know the heart of the Father. And it changes who you are. And when we see the heart of the Father in the person of Jesus, believe. Believe the truth of the heart of the Father, who is not out to condemn you, destroy you, or kill you. Believe the reality of the person of Christ. Believe that God blesses with grace upon grace, favor upon favor. You know, as I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought, why would Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, why would Jesus, who is God, why would Jesus, through whom all things have been, for, have been made, for whom, through whom, and by whom, why? Why would that Jesus choose to make his dwelling amongst us? Why would that Jesus choose to make his dwelling amongst us who are just going to reject him? Why would that Jesus choose to make his dwelling among us who are just going to deny him? Why would that Jesus? That at one time we've grabbed onto his hands, now we try to shake it up. Why would that Jesus choose to dwell with us? Why would that Jesus 
Choose to be with us who are responsible for his own. He came to his own. His own rejected him, denied him, are now responsible for his crucifixion. Why would that, Jesus? You know why? John tells us a couple chapters later. For God so loved. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the one who was going to deny him. For God so loved the one who was going to walk away from him. For God so loved the one who was never going to accept him. For God so loved the one who was going to reject. For God so loved the one. For God so loved the one that when they were little, they reached out and grabbed his hand, and now they're older, they try to shake it off. For God so loved. For God so loved the one that's trying to walk away. For God so loved the one that's trying to hold on to God and hold on to everything else in this world. For God so loved. For God so loved the one who's trying to keep God in the shadows while they chase everything else in front of them. For God so loved. For God so loved the one who took God off the throne of their life and put themselves on top, who now live in selfishness. For God so loved. For God so loved who takes everything else and puts it here and here rather than this. For God so loved. For God so loved the world. That's why. That he gave his only, his one and only son. That whoever believes, believes and grabs hold in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why would Jesus, because of the heart of the Father? See, because of Jesus and the love of God, his love never fails. Because of Jesus and the love of God, He stays the same through the ages. No turning or shifting of shadows. No slumber or sleep. Because of Jesus and the love of God, His love never ceases. Because of Jesus and the love of God, though the ocean's rage, we're not afraid. Because of Jesus and the love of God, we know that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because of Jesus and the love of God, He works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His will. Because Jesus and the love of God, we know that though there's pain in the night, and there is, joy comes in the morning. We know that because the Word of God took on flesh. He loves you so that you might believe. So come and believe. For those of you who have never yet taken God's hand through faith in Jesus, today's your day. For those of you who have taken his hand and now trying to walk away, believe again. For those of you who are so scatterbrained, you're trying to hold on to God's hand and everything else's hand in this world. Believe afresh. For those of us who have held on and not let go, be amazed again. Believe again. I want you to pray with me. Let me give you a chance to do exactly as John has said, the purpose for his book, his letter to believe. If you've never believed and grabbed hold 
of God's hand. Why not today? Why not right now? It has nothing to do with your performance. Just simply by faith believe. As simple as ABC. Admit your sin and that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross to secure your forgiveness and commit to holding his hand. In your own words, say, God, I admit it. I've sinned and I'm a sinner. That makes me a sinner. I believe that your son, I believe that Jesus died so my sin could be forgiven. I confess my sin to you and I commit to holding your hand. Make today that day for you. But for others of you, who at one point have held his hand and are now trying to shake it off, believe again. And I would encourage you in this moment to say, God, I'm going to choose to believe again. I take your hand. Thank you for not walking away from me. For those of you who have held his hand, but you're trying to hold on to everything else in this world too. That you may believe that his is the only hand worth holding. Would you come to him in prayer this morning and say, God, I want your hand and your hand alone. I've been sidetracked and distracted by so many other things in this world. I just want to hold your hand alone. Strip every other away from me. For those of you who have not ever let go, you've held on tight. Would you keep holding on tight that you may believe and be more impressed with this Jesus? Oh, Father, would you overwhelm us and impress us again with who you are, your love, and your Son that has come to take up dwelling amongst us. And Father, as we hold, as we reach and hold your, as we grab onto your hand, would you respond to us according to what your word has already said? That we have the legal right to expect grace upon grace upon grace, favor upon blessing upon favor upon blessing upon favor upon blessing, gift after gift after gift. For those of us who have held on to your, which I pray this over our church, I pray this over your people who are reaching out in your hand that we may believe again that you would do exactly what you said you would do because we are the legal, we have legal right to your mercy and your grace. Would you respond now as we hold on to your hand with favor added to faith, with grace added to grace, with gift added to gift. Thank you. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more and to be impressed by you and your word. In your name I pray, amen. And listen, I told you last week I was going to give this opportunity. Some of you would take me up on it. And you got questions that this book is so profound. It's big. I can't. I can't cover everything that needs to be covered. If it raises questions, send me an email. Info at acts176.com. And I'll put together these little podcasts and try to address the questions that you have as we talk through this. It's going to get real deep, real fast. You good with that? Keep reading your Bible. Let's sing.